Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. This week, I'm speaking to Professor Daljeet S. Virk, whose career in plant breeding spans 50 years. We talk about running regression analyses in the days before computers, breaking the mold and proving conventional wisdom wrong, and how breeding crops for very low-income farmers dramatically enhance their food security. I hope you enjoy it. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you go to school? Where did you grow up? Were you interested in plants from an early age? Just give, give me a little bit of background about you. Yeah, I was born in India, just near the border between Pakistan and India. My family had moved from Pakistan during partition and my father died during those rites. And then uh, I studied in the village school. In the high school, I stood first in the school and then went to the college, uh, which is about 10 miles from my village in Amritsar, in Punjab, Khalsa College, Amritsar, which is very old, more than 100 years old college. And uh, I did BSc in agriculture there and stood first uh, in the Punjab University. It was in 1964, I passed my graduation and then went to do my MSc plant breeding in Punjab Agricultural University, Ludhiana. What made you interested in doing that and why that rather than, I don't know, accounting or something else? Because I belong to a village, I'm a village boy. So agriculture is the main thing in the villages. So I was always interested in agriculture. It was a, it was a basic thing which we were doing at home also. So this was not a very different or new thing to me. And then secondly, what made me to choose a BSc agriculture was my father had died. And then we had financial crisis in the family. And I wanted to do something which will be which will give me some employment after graduation. I was assured by my seniors that once I do graduation, I will get a job. And when I passed my BSc, I was sent an offer letter to my home without an interview because there was so many, so much demand of uh, inspectors and agriculture or agricultural officers because of the new era beginning in agriculture. You know, it was start of a green revolution, just before green revolution. So agriculture was in a demand. I didn't know that. And how long did you do that job for? I didn't do it. Oh, you didn't do it? No, I didn't do it because I stood first in the university in my BSc agriculture. So it gave me a good scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I won the scholarship, National Merit Scholarship. So I I could do my uh, MSc. And you did your MSc at the Punjab Agricultural University, but I gather you didn't want to start out doing plant sciences? I wanted to do economics, you know, uh, economics and social sciences, uh, agricultural economics. 
And then my senior friend came to me, said, why are you doing this economics? You should be doing some science. You have done science in BSc. Why don't you do science and go to plant breeding? It's a, it's a thing which will serve the farmers better than economics. Then he, he convinced me and I shifted to uh, plant breeding and that became my passion. Do you ever think, would life have been different or, or if you'd gone down the economics route? Sometimes I do think that uh, I could have excelled in economics as well because that uh, subject I like. But I did study economics in my BSc Agriculture, so that's why I could do the do this economics as well. You could do both? Yeah, could do both, yeah. It sounds like the context that you grew up in made agriculture very much just part of your life and was an obvious choice, but also a, a trade-off. Of course, yeah, yeah. It was the circumstances, circumstances, choices. I didn't have anybody else to guide me in the family, so I got this guidance from my friends and uh, the person who has seen it to me. And I'm curious about, you know, it was really interesting timing. This was when the Green Revolution was beginning to roll out and have effect. How did that influence your work and your view of the world? Yeah, in the universities at that time, when I was an MSc student, we were involved in the breeding or selection of wheat variety doing selection for the disease resistance in the field and studying the subject uh, of plant breeding. It was exactly the same time. I, I started my MSc in 64, and then uh, I passed out in 66. And just after that, the Green Revolution impact had started. New varieties of wheat, which had come from Mexico, they started being distributed to farmers. And it was the beginning, you know. And were you working on, on wheat early on? Yeah, I did my MSc in wheat. Mm-hmm. But uh, then um, I, after my MSc, I then uh, shifted to lecturing in my old college from where I did BSc. I, I, I came, became as a lecturer and a lecturer in plant breeding and botany, agricultural botany. So I taught there for four years. Then I... I got a job in uh, the agricultural university as assistant professor, and uh, I was there for uh, about three years. And it was while you were there that you applied for a scholarship in the UK, right? I applied for two scholarships. One was a German exchange scholarship, which is called DAD, and the other one was Commonwealth scholarship, and I got selected in both of them. And then I opted for a British scholarship, because I thought if I go to German, I have to learn German and uh, I will spend another uh, and one, one year to learn it. And English, uh, I know a bit. So I have been taught in English. So it will be easier for me to go to Britain and get my PhD. And that's what I did. And what year was that? That was in 73. I was about 26, something like that. And, and that was Birmingham, wasn't it? So 26-year-old Daljeet came to Birmingham in, in the mid-70s. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, again, it's, it's slightly different. I didn't come to Birmingham straight away. It was my dream to come to Birmingham because the professor there, Professor John Jinks, he was so well-known in the world in biometrical genetics, just the very important person. And I had a dream to work with him. But unfortunately, I had uh, written to Aberystwyth because the director of Aberystwyth at that time 
came to Delhi and I met him in a conference and I said, I want to come to Britain. If I apply, will you accept me? He said, yes, if you have good references, he will accept. And I got accepted. So you've traveled halfway around the world as a young man and you've arrived in Aberystwyth in Wales in the early 1970s. What was that like? I couldn't adjust there because it was a new country, new people, no Indian there, no Punjabi there. I was alone. There were some Pakistanis. As there were a few Pakistanis. I did some, about three months, I attended a biometrical genetic course, which I excelled my professor said, oh, you know everything. So, But he said, he, he also commented, you should be, should have been in Birmingham rather than Aberystwyth. You are so good in quantitative genetics. And uh, then I requested my professor, I I am unable to adjust here. It's loneliness. I am having it's a new, strange country. I have never been out of my home and I can't live on like this. I am feeling lonely. So then I got shifted to Birmingham because I had a friend there who was uh, doing PhD with Professor Jinx. I spoke to him. If I come, if I opt for, will he accept me? He said, yes, I have talked to him. He will accept you. And that's how it happened. And when you finally did make it to Birmingham, what did that feel like? I was so happy. I, I spent that time happily. I did a lot of work, new work, new quantitative genetic modeling and so much theoretical work. I excelled and I developed a lot of skill. Uh, in Birmingham because that was the institution which was on top in the world in my subject. This was the mid to late 70s by this point. So computers would have been pretty thin on the ground. So how did you do the work? It was quite analytical. You know, when I was an MSc student, we didn't have any computer. We used to work on hand calculator. Hand calculator was a machine which had nine digits on it. You Just like a typing machine, you know. And uh, you have to press one to nine figures with, with zero. And then with combination, you have to rotate the handle nine times if you want to multiply by nine, multiply three by multi uh, rotated three times. If you want to divide, you do it reverse. So that sort of thing. And we, I did my analysis in MSc on that machine. Wow. And I had specialized in quantitative genetics. And inverse of metrics, we could do the, on that machine with a lot of labor. If you do one mistake, you, you have to do it again. And that's how I did my analysis, regression analysis, all those inversions of matrices on that machine. Then I, be, I came to Birmingham. Then there was something better. It was Olivetti machine. It was much faster and I was happy. Oh, it's very good. Then there was a computer which was mainframe computer placed in one of the department, computer department in the university, about half a mile away from the department. You had to go there and feed the cards. You have to first punch the cards, where, uh, which are binary function of punching of data on the card, then feed the cards into the computer, write your own program in Fortran, or ask somebody to help you in that. So it, it was not easy, but still computer, basic computers, the mainframe was there, which was a very, very big whole room machine, you know, and the whole department, every department at the university used to go there and you had to go there by turn on certain days. So it was not that easy, but, uh, but still we felt very comfortable because we had something better than doing it by hand. The work you were doing in Birmingham sounds like it was um, theory, you know, building the, building the underlying principles and lab-based. 
Can you explain the link between the theory and the practical applications in the field? Quantitative genetics makes you understand how the genes travel from parents to the children, offspring. And if you know that, know that if you can maneuver them various ways, then you can select better plants from the segregating generations. Then it, it's the basis of crossing how the populations of plants behave, how, how you can maneuver them for the benefit of uh, farmers. The theoretical work was a sort of statistical extension into genetics where you try to understand passes of uh, uh, chromosomes, passes of genes from parents to offspring and how to monitor them, how to catch them for the benefit of the environment. So that's why exactly the theoretical work was totally linked with practical aspect. So was this work that was directly feeding into new varieties? It was not uh, variety oriented in the UK. It was more understanding the knowledge of genetics with quantitative genetics, you know. I grew experiments there, which were large experiments, for example, different crossing schemes, for example, we had, uh, a, a, I took two crosses in which I developed 22 generations by crossing the progenies in different ways. For example, you have F1, you back cross with parents, then you have F2, you back cross with uh, other parents and reciprocal crosses and various types of combinations, and then followed the genes through the different generations by genetic models. And find out which is, which is good one and how you can select and how can how can you tap. So you did your PhD and postdoctoral studies in Birmingham, focus mostly on um, the underlying techniques. Yeah, yeah. And after that, moved back to India and took the position of associate professor in genetics at the Punjab Agricultural University. What came next? After two years teaching genetics, I thought it became too much teaching. You know, less of practical. Though I was doing some research for students and all those things, but it was not directly practical. So then I shifted to plant breeding department where I was put as a in charge of millet breeding program. So then I started millet breeding. Bajra, Pearl millet was the main crop. And it was during this time that you started to do more practical research and publishing more papers, right? I used to guide students and... Uh, collect data and from the data, practical data, I used to publish a lot. And I published about more than 300, 350 papers on that. I never did any separate experiment than my practical breeding program. So I, I would do practical breeding program and collect data and write it up. So that's how it has happened. I evolved a number of varieties, hybrid varieties, composite varieties, master lines in Pearl Minute which were released for cultivation and breeding. And, and is this, you've, I forget the term that you've used, is it farmer-led breeding? Is that, is that what you were doing throughout or is that something that came later on? While I was in, uh, in Bangor University, I came in 94. There it was more of a farmer-led uh, thing, you know, and we used to call it participatory plant breeding where farmers would participate in breeding of new varieties. And then we moved on in a different direction within this field. And that we call as client-oriented breeding rather than farmer-led or farmer-participatory uh, or the, all those things. We said farmer always participate, farmer is always leader, 
but client orientation is a better term because client is not just the farmer, it's the consumer as well, it's the market, it's the industry, and we have to consider their opinion as well. There are multiple stakeholders in the breeding process, in the orientation of the breeding objectives, so we have to take those into consideration and let it be client-oriented breeding, and that's what we did. At this point, is this the work you were doing for the UK government's Department for International Development, DFID? Yeah, DFID, yeah, yeah. DFID had a big, big programme for the tribal poor people in the villages, ignored areas, far-flung villages where people are poor, they don't have uh, food even for for full year, very small holdings, no irrigation, no fertiliser. We said we, we will use plant breeding to improve their food security. And we found that what are the crops farmers growing and then shortlist which are the most important, start breeding in them. Then we started breeding in some of the crops where we couldn't get varieties which were suitable for farmers. But the crops were very important. For example, rice, for the upland situation, all varieties were failing. We tested all varieties available. Nothing proved good for the farmers. Farmers were growing their own land races. So we wanted to replace the land races with a better variety. So that's where we started breeding of upland rice. Then similarly in maize, farmers were not having good composite varieties. The the Indian government uh, policy was to give them hybrids. And hybrids will not grow with poor farmers. So we developed composite varieties which were suitable for the farmers. And similarly, for other crops, wherever varieties were available, we didn't breed. We just provided them the varieties, let them test and choose the best one. And where the variety is not available, we bred the varieties along with farmers. And that we called it as a client-oriented breeding because we had a research farm as well as farmer field. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. So so a lot of your work, it sounds like perhaps even the majority of your work through your career has been developing varieties for very poor, underserved farmers who don't have the advantages of tools, fertilizer, technologies that we might think of when we think about the developed world yes. farming. Yes, sure, sure. That, that, yeah, that, 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 that's exactly right. I worked in Ethiopia, worked in uh, Namibia and other countries in uh, Africa and the always the target was poor farmers, marginal farmers, rain-fed farmers, and uh, poor in the sense their soil is poor, also their resources are poor. They can't afford to put uh, uh, high doses of fertilizer, maybe little bit. They don't have the irrigation. Of irrigation is there is very 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 small irrigation they have. They cannot do do much. So that was the target, and the food security is not there. They have only a meal for six months in a year, something like that. Then they migrate to cities for labor and all that. And so they were really poor people, and they don't have access uh, to various uh, infrastructures like roads and other facilities from the government. 
So we used to work in watershed. In, in Ethiopia, I worked in watersheds where uh, we involved universities, Department of Agriculture, they call it Bureau of Agriculture, Food Security Department, then uh, research, uh, uh, agriculture research institutes. So all those we were working together in a consortium and uh, we used to work in watershed where there was many villages and there was very poor and sort of uh, hilly terrain, terrain, there's no irrigation at all. So that sort of that was a challenge, you know, how to increase their uh, food. And and what would you say is the achievement that you're most proud of through all? I mean, you've done amazing work through your throughout your career in developing new ways of doing things and developing varieties that help these really, you know, really important sectors that are otherwise overlooked. What what are you most proud of? You are right. We have been very innovative. We did things in different ways. Sometimes the traditional plant bees laughed at us that you will fail. And we said, no, what we are thinking is based on theory and we will not fail. And we did succeed. And uh, they were amazed that how much success we have. So it was uh, reorienting our uh, plant breeding approach, which will give us a high success be at a high speed and that's what we targeted and modified our methods of breeding which were very successful and now people are following them can you give me an example of that of when somebody said it, or uh, yeah you had an idea others said it wouldn't work and you proved it and it had an impact sure taking the example of rice what we did was we said we will not do many crosses previously the plant breeder will do thousands of crosses and why they do a thousand crosses because they come from international institutes like iri in philippines like simit uh, rice uh, maize and wheat breeding program in mexico they go and get training there so they do thousands of crosses and then in the end they they get confused but we said no we will do very few crosses for example per year we only did one or two crosses not more than that. And before doing the cross, we will deliberate why we want to do this cross. What is the female parent? What defects is that? How the defects can be uh, cleared by other parent? And how we were going to cross? What sort of variation we expect? And how we will handle the handle the generations? For example, in rice, we did two crosses. One was local, best local variety. Farmers want something to improve on this so one parent is fixed take the second parent which is very diverse and it gives you various good traits for example we crossed kalinga three variety which was popular with farmers with upland it was short duration variety but it had certain defects for example the defect was it lodges when there's more rain more uh, fertile uh, soil and its roots are poor but otherwise its grain quality is very good its yield is all very good. People like it. So we want to remove those defects. That, then we said, what will be the second parent? We crossed it with IR64. IR64 was the most populous, popular variety at that time in the world. And it was high yielding, high disease resistant, and it was adapted for irrigation. We crossed it. And another variety was next was IR36. We crossed that. We, did, we, we thought it will not succeed. 
and that's what happened in the f2 we said we will grow large population to get uh, all sorts of variation created by genetic recombination and we said we will not grow less than 20 10 to 20000 plants per cross so we had two crosses and we grow more than 15000 plants for each one cross we studied in the f2 we found lot of variation but the grain quality was not good and we rejected it the second cross it was the best cross and we chose plants from that we bulked it and then we said we will not do do very rigorous selection in the f2 we will delay our selection up to f5 or f4 and once f5 is there then we brought the farmers one variety was selected on farmer field other on our such station with farmers and then we brought we made it true breeding and put it in trials immediately within three years we were doing the testing and in a year or so in three four years we had the variety you know which uh, we gave to the university you test in your trial and all india trials we put the variety and then we got it released so this is this is the difference one a doing the diverse cross doing very few crosses delaying the selection till there's homozygosity and then doing farmer field testing once the variety is established along with other varieties and release it immediately. And who benefited from that when, when it was released? Who used it and how did it get to them? Uh, oh, yeah, it was, a, uh, it was benefited by the university staff, the researchers, because they were our collaborators. And then we produced the seed and gave fa farmers seed in large quantity. A, we said, this variety is good. We said to farmers, you, you grow this variety next year, keep the seed and share it with, with the other people, which they did. And this was farmers in India, was it? Yeah, in India. And then we started our uh, cooperative uh, seed production with farmers. The, the success adaptation of the variety was very good. It was spreading. We isolated some money for seed production and gave the seed free to farmers in small quantities, say one kg, two kg, so that it spreads, goes to many farmers. And uh, then uh, Rockefeller Foundation came in. I said, okay, come on, I will show you in the villages. We talked to, to him to the villages and then we had meetings with farmers and he was so impressed. He said, how can we help you? I said, in what? I said, we want that this uh, variety should spread more and we also get credit because they were not having any impact with their program, programs, which he had fun. So the, the lead from the Rockefeller Foundation wanted to help? He, he, he said, he said give, me, give me a proposal, I will give you a project on seed, private-public partnership. And that was the seed production. And we wrote the project. They gave us money for five years. And they gave us uh, plant, uh, seed processing plants. We bought them, put them at two, three places, and involved hundreds of farmers for seed production and produced uh, seed every year and distributed and sold as well. Sold to Department of Agriculture, sold to different agencies, private agencies, private uh, NGOs, and so that they spread to farmers, you know. So it was millions of farmers who got benefited from uh, those varieties, which farmers will grow without uh, additional irrigation without additional fertilizer or doing anything different what they're doing for their own variety but harvesting five times more it's a brilliant story of how 
how of how doing things differently can give great results. Yeah, yeah that's what uh, that's what I said. The these breeders were not believing that how fast we will succeed and we are doing one or two crosses. It's not possible. And I tell you, from the same cross, we developed a dozen varieties. I've known you for many years now, and though you're supposed to be semi-retired, you're still a man of enormous energies. You're doing work with us at PBS International. Until recent times with the COVID restrictions, you were lecturing in Ethiopia, and you're a leader in the Sikh community. So I'm curious at this point, given all the changes that have happened over the last year, what things are attracting your interest and energy, and where do you see the opportunities for the future or concerns for the future? Uh, well, uh, during the COVID, I have been uh, restricted to my home, and I do what I can do my from from here only. I was due to go to Ethiopia in April, which I cancelled. And uh, one of my student who was in Bangor, she has now risen to the post of president, which is vice chancellor in the in McKellar University, and she has excelled in uh, plant breeding. And she she always calls me for lecturing and also helping in, in her research. So things have been going on. Then whatever time I have, I study some of the news in India. I get interested in there, what's happening there with the new laws and agriculture passed by Indian government, its impact and uh, farmers striking a lot of opposition. I, I like to follow it. And then uh, I was thinking now to do something to study more in religion and write something. This this is coming to my mind again and again. I, I may start it, you know. You were awarded an OBE a couple of years ago. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I was given an OBE, which is Officer of the Order of the British Empire, by the Queen in 2019 New Year's Honour List. My nomination was not on my scientific career, but uh, it did mention about my uh, one paragraph about my contribution to farmers and its impact and uh, the varieties which uh, uh, had most impact, the rice varieties, it was mentioned there too. And the second was uh, my services to education uh, in UK. So these were the two things. So that's uh, that's very prestigious and very high. You must be well. I'm very proud for you, <laughs> your family and and your community and and your colleagues. And I know there's a huge amount of pride because it's well deserved. It's recognition of all the tremendous work that you've done. Yeah, you know when I was receiving it, Prince Charles uh, spent about a minute talking to me. About the rice varieties. Really? Yeah, yeah. He 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 mentioned about it and then asked me about it, maybe a minute or two, something like that. He he just uh, talked to me personally. Probably he's prompted with all those things. But he's interested in agriculture as well, isn't he? So it would be something I think that appeals to his interests. Probably that would have been uh, that that would have uh, made him interested in this. Mm -hmm. It's possible. But he did talk to me. Uh, quite elaborately. So last question. Um, what opportunities do you see for the future? And you could think about that in the in just a general sense, or maybe if you were starting over, you know, if you were starting your career now, what opportunities would you see? Climate change is a big thing which is coming in the future for plant breeders, and it's a challenge. 
and how we are going to develop varieties which are best suited under the climate change. So, so this is a challenge for plant. The course of challenge will be use of more of a DNA techniques with field-oriented techniques, which quantitative analysis, field designs, and all those things for evaluation with farmers, and more orientation towards client breeding, where you will, where you will like to map the demands of uh, the market, demand of the producer, demand of the uh, consumer, demand of the industry all those things have to be combined and then have specifically target uh, uh, oriented breeding programs for various uh, situation but um, on the other thing any plant breeding you do it always involves crossing pollination that's a part of plant breeding so in future as the plant breeding is progressing pollination control systems have also to progress and also have different uh, alternative uh, uh, provisions so that uh, you can do them on small scale, individual plant scale, multiple plant scale, and large scale uh, to hasten the breeding process. But uh, as the population is increasing over this uh, small globe, I would say, the need for uh, more food production will always be there and we have to cope with it and second is the food supply chain will also need to be uh, more developed because at the moment even the food is there but it's not being uh, made available to the people who need it not on a price which they can afford not where they are living so it's a distribution is also a big big challenge even if you produce a lot of food how are you going to distribute all over the world is not just food production it's food supply chain and food distribution and availability where it's required professor daljeet svert obe thank you very much for sharing your plant breeding story with me today it has been fascinating thank you very much You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. If you want to suggest people you'd like us to interview, contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at pbs underscore int. Until next time, stay well.